this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. So Hebrews 5, 11 uh, through 6, 12. This is the Word of God. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of God. Now, a few people uh, have mentioned uh, coming up to this section of Hebrews uh, that this is one which is not only controversial, but also one which has an enormous impact uh, in a variety of theological areas and also in terms of assurance of salvation. What is this passage saying? So, in this room... Uh, I'm going to guess uh, that there are a diversity of opinions about how this text is to be properly read, and so from the very beginning, I will just say, I agree with you. You are right. 
I'll try to work through the text uh, together, uh, focusing on the bigger aspects of it. Uh, but before we do that, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity this morning by your Spirit to praise you in song, to worship you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, Tim and Jan, for Friends in Action. We thank you for the work uh, that you have done uh, using them as your servants, the way that they have uh, equipped and empowered uh, many of your servants over these years. Uh, we thank you for the fruitfulness uh, of that ministry. And we pray now, Lord, as we just heard in this just one example of the many that could be given, uh, because of the work with the Rama people, they are now teaching uh, themselves uh, and teaching others in their own community. Father, we pray for this multiplying work to take place in every mission field uh, around the world. We thank you for that uh, replication that we see where uh, your, your servants uh, on the mission field pour into folk who then, through coming to know Christ and through the Spirit and the Word, uh, are able to do the work of evangelists and pastors and teachers and trainers uh, in their own indigenous communities. We thank you for that. Uh, we pray that those sorts of cascading effects will be seen all over the world so that uh, this generation will see far, far, far more fruit uh, around the world than we could ever see just by sending out uh, cross-cultural missionaries. Thank you for the role that they play. Um, in being so instrumental in getting these domino chains started. Uh, continue to bless them in the field, Lord. We think not only of friends in action, but of all of your servants around the world who are serving those cross-cultural ways. Give them great fruit and reward for their labor uh, so you will receive great glory. And through the seeds that they plant, through the harvest that comes, again, may it become uh, multiplying in so many ways. Father, we pray for us here this morning. For everyone in the building, from the youngest to the oldest, uh, Lord, bless them, open uh, hearts, open minds. May your word go forth with power, and may you receive great glory as we come to understand you more and trust you better and to be more like Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. And just a quick uh, note. Easter Sunday, Lord willing, we're planning on having a baptismal uh, service here. Uh, if you have not been baptized and you're someone who's put their faith in the Lord, uh, I'd encourage you to come and talk to me, and uh, we'll be able to talk about uh, following the Lord, taking on that sign uh, of belonging to the new covenant community, the church, through Christ, uh, as displayed through the waters of baptism. Now, what if I were to tell you, and, and, and obviously there would be a number of implications for this, uh, so just track with the major point. What if I were to tell you that last night God gave me a revelatory vision? And in that vision, I was able to see the new heavens and new earth. And I was able to tell you definitively that you were not going to be there. I was able to tell you, I, I, I read the book of life and your name was not there that you were cast away. You did not know God. You were not saved through Jesus Christ. For a lot of people in this room, probably the initial response would be, but wait a minute, but I love the Lord. I, I, I've repented for my sins. I, 
I'm, I trusted in Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus today. He's my Lord and Savior. And I say, oh, oh, yes, that's very true. And if you had died today, you would have been saved. But somehow between today and the day of your death, things encroached in your life, slowly you drifted away from the Lord, and in the end you abandoned your profession of faith, and you were eternally lost. In other words, you were saved, but lost your salvation. If it is possible to lose salvation, one would suspect that that is a sort of fact in the universe that would keep people up at night in worry. Because the one thing you could never say is, well, theoretically you can lose your salvation and other people do, but I won't. Because one of the realities about Christian faith is just recognizing, quite literally, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so there is absolutely nothing in me in terms of my own loyalty or fidelity or intelligence or goodness or love, which would make it, if you can lose your salvation, impossible for me to be one of those people who do. And to think otherwise, to think that somehow other people can lose their salvation, but I never can would actually be unspeakably arrogant. That somehow what can befall sort of mere mortal Christians could never befall me. Somehow others might be lost, but I for sure will not be. I didn't know what these roses represented until Tim explained. But can you imagine if, if you put out the roses and then these represent people who were saved, but then later on they're not in heaven. They're not in glory. Again, genuinely saved, but something happened and they abandoned their profession of faith and they lost their salvation. If it can happen to anyone, it can happen to you. The question is, can it happen? Can you lose your salvation? Now, that is the question that people generally ask when they hit chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And I'm going to do two th- say something which is going to seem like a paradox. I'm going to say that is entirely the right and entirely the wrong question to ask about this text. And, and I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by that later. Now, first, just, just off to the side in terms of framing it, the passage is very controversial in terms of interpretation because of several competing ways of understanding the language, but also mainly because of the control of theological systems. That is, people already have a theological system or a theological view, then they come to the text with their system already in place and filter the verses through their pre-understanding of the issues. That happens all of the time in all kinds of texts. This one is particularly uh, complicated for this reason. 
The question, can you lose your salvation, is not a question you can start with in terms of systematic theology. It's a question that occurs way down the pipe after you've answered all kinds of other questions first. That is, to answer that question, you need to answer a whole host of questions first. Questions like this. Do people choose Christ on the basis of their own free will, or does God elect those who will be saved? That is, is the Calvinistic question. Massive difference. If God is the one who elects and chooses and regenerates and saves and draws, then he has the power to persevere those he has elected all the way to glory, which is why Calvinists believe that if you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation. It's a systematic, logical, coherent system which generates that answer. Jacob Arminius, one of Calvin's students who departed from Calvin at almost every point, said, no, God doesn't elect that way. Uh, God chooses, but it's on the basis of foreseeing our free will faith response to him, But Arminius said, you know, actually, when it comes to whether or not we can lose our salvation, though, he said, I'm not sure. He said, it is possible you can use your free will and trust in Christ, and once you trust in Christ and are given that new nature, you will never use your will to turn away from Jesus. He said, that's possible, but I'm not sure. It might be possible to use your free will in the end to reject. It is, if free will gets you in, free will can get you out. Now, the Calvinist doesn't ask that question at all. Now, the Calvinist doesn't, doesn't have to worry about that at all because the Calvinist doesn't believe it's free will that gets you in. The Calvinist believes it's the unilateral electing decision of God. So, by the time you start asking the question, can you lose your salvation, if you're debating that issue, what you really need to do is go back and ask probably half a dozen thoughtful questions first before you even arrive there. Now, a quick note about vocabulary, too, lest we have misunderstanding. Some people will talk about eternal security. Some people will talk about, sort of as as a quip, once saved, always saved. And some people will talk about perseverance of the saints. Some mean the exact same thing by all three phrases. Some don't. Some will believe in a sort of an eternal security or once saved, always saved, something along these lines. Well, if at one moment you said the sinner's prayer, then you're saved, and no matter what you say, no matter what you do for the remainder of your life, you're saved. Once saved, always saved which is why there are some Christians who believe there are people who are professing atheists are saved. Because when they were eight, they said a prayer and were baptized, and so they once saved, always saved, they were saved then, they cannot possibly lose their salvation. The one thing I'll insist on now, theologically, is that the Bible teaches at a minimum that perseverance in faith all the way to the end, is a mark of a genuine true believer. And so you cannot just at one moment say, I feel badly for my sin, Jesus save me, I don't want to go to hell, and then live like the devil for 80 years and expect that you're 
actually have saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is, the Bible insists that genuine faith transforms people and produces fruit. One of the fruit of genuine faith is perseverance in that faith profession. So, these texts in Hebrews, this text particularly, is to be taken seriously. That is, if you reject Jesus, you will not be saved. There is no repentance if you turn away from Jesus Christ and stop trusting in His atonement for salvation, because salvation is only found in Jesus. And so, if you reject Jesus, there is no salvation available. He's the only source. And that rejection of Jesus is what counts. It's not whatever you did or didn't say in a moment, you know, back in history. In other words, the New Testament is always challenging you, what does your life look like today? Where is your trust today? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ today? Are you persevering in that relationship? Now then, uh, before we look at some of those, the answer to some of those questions, uh, let's start working through the text. Verse 11. This is coming on his discussion of Melchizedek, which he'll pick up again in chapter 7, so we'll see this next week. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you no longer try to understand. This is, this is actually fascinating. These, these few verses, in fact, this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. He's basically saying, look, this is something for all of us. He's saying, listen, it is sinful that you are not in a position to be teaching other people. The reason that you are not in a position to be teaching other people is you've stopped trying to learn. You are simply not making any effort to grow in your knowledge of God's truth. You, although by this time you ought to be teachers, that is, you should be, it is a moral failure that you're not. God has given you His Word, He's given you His Spirit. And does that mean that you're supposed to have some sort of, you know, like massive, you know, international teaching ministry and podcasts and all of the rest? No, but it means that when you're talking with people, you should be able to instruct them the basic truths of the gospel. You should know Jesus. You should know God. You should be able to understand your Bible. As you read the Word and walk by the Spirit and pray, there should be obvious growth in your life in terms of understanding. So if you can't teach better now than you could five years ago, there's a massive problem. You ought to be teachers. But it's clear you're no longer trying to understand. That is, you've reached a place of, of status quo, there's apathy now. It's, well, I know enough. I'm good enough. I'm close enough to God. And he rebukes them. You need to have solid food, but you're not ready for it. You should be, but you still are having milk like an infant. Now, then what he says next in chapter 6, verse 1, it's fascinating. Therefore, that is, because I need to treat you like an infant... Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. In other words, he says, well, listen, this is where you are. You know, you ought to be teachers, but you're not. You should be having solid food, but you can't handle it. You really need milk. But because of that, 
It's time to grow up now, and I'm going to take you by the hand and lead you forward. That is, we're going into some things that are going to be more difficult, because that's what you actually need. We're, you know, sort of classes in session, and you are going to sit there and learn. Put your phone away. Let us move beyond these elementary teachings. Be taken forward to maturity. We're not going to lay the foundation again foundation of repentance. This doesn't mean that these things become unimportant. It means that they're so foundational. You don't just keep talking about them all the time. Repentance is how you start from acts that lead to death, and faith in God. As you turn away from sin, put your faith and trust in God. Instruction is about cleansing rites, baptism, initiation rites into the community, the laying on of the hands, often in the book of Acts, laying on of hands and prayer accompanies the gift of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of the dead at the end times and eternal judgment. So, so basically, it's sort of almost an A to Z of, of Christianity that is conversion and growth and eschatology. So we're not going to lay those things again. Okay? You should know them. We're going to go on to maturity. And verse 3 is amazing. And God permitting, we will do so. You just need to understand this. You are responsible to work. That's why he rebukes them in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. You are responsible to work. But you are responsible to work humbly in recognition that if God doesn't help you, you're not going to grow. If God doesn't empower you, you can read the Bible all day long. It's not going to help you. You, you can pray. In fact, you can engage in all kinds of religious activity. But if, if you're not trusting in God, you're not going to grow. It's only by the gift of God and the Spirit of God that any of us can go forward to maturity. So God permitting. He means it. It's not rhetoric. God permitting. We will do so. And then he says this. It is impossible, and that phrase We'll then see several subordinate clauses after it. But it is impossible connects to the end of verse 6. It is impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That's what he says. The rest in between are subordinate clauses filling out the kind of person who this might happen to. But the main idea is it is impossible if you fall away to be brought back to repentance. Now, what kind of people are in view here? Also, just to say this, if this text is teaching, if, contingency, if it is teaching you can lose your salvation, it is clearly teaching you can lose your salvation once. Because it is impossible if you fall away to be brought back to repentance. Which means there is no cycle of saved, lose my salvation, come back to Jesus, saved again, lose my salvation, come back to Jesus. You get one shot if this is what the text is saying. If you fall away, it is impossible to be brought back to repentance. Now, what are the people that we're talking about? We're talking about people who have once been enlightened. We're talking about people who have tasted the heavenly gift. We're talking about people who have shared in the Holy Spirit. We are talking about people who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. If these people fall away, it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. So, how do we understand this? 
Well, I will spare you uh, the long and sometimes torturous pathways of argument uh, that people advance in this text to give you three quick interpretations. The first interpretation is this. These people are not actually converted in the first place. Now, a prima facie, that is a first reading of this text, certainly sounds like they're saved. And I think if nothing else, we just need to acknowledge that. So no matter what your position is, you know, the one thing I, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for, for people who say, you know what, I, I think you can lose your salvation because I think Hebrews 6 teaches that. You know, immediately I can say, even if I disagree with them, I see where you get that from. It's not hard to see if you're being fair. If you just look at the language of this text, it's not hard at all to see where someone might get that from reading this passage. Okay. But what does it mean? Who have once been enlightened. Well, you can make a case that enlightenment is language which just deals with intellectual understanding. That is, they intellectually understand the gospel. They've tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they've been in the church when spiritual gifts are in operation. They have some experience of that. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has active and alive and powerful in the congregation, and they have been there. They have been part of it. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. That is, they've heard the Word of God proclaimed, and it's resonated a little bit with them. They, they've agreed with it. They, they, they come under conviction by it. They, they, they want to respond to it in some capacity. The powers of the coming age. Again, they, they see the transformation taking place in people's lives around them. And maybe even for themselves, they experience some reforms. That is, they, they make some resolutions. They, they start to, to read their Bible. They start to try to change. They look forward to fellowship. They look forward to actually learning about the Bible. And, and, and they begin to be interested in spiritual things. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which this is all taking place in the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. And so there's some excitement there. And they might even say, you know what? I, I really believe God's there. I really believe God's speaking to me. Like, I really believe that there's something about Jesus that's different. Maybe he, is, maybe he is the Son of God. Maybe there's something unique and special about Him. Maybe I do need Him. And, and it's just all kind of on the cusp of things. It's participation in, it's tasting, but it's not fully swallowing and digesting. It, it comes short of commitment. It's having religious, spiritual experiences, but the heart isn't genuinely converted. There's no deep heart change. Now, some will notice, this isn't really quite fair to, the, to our author, but some will notice this. The key terms in New Testament for conversion are not found here. So, enlightened, participating, tasted, that language is more amb ambiguous than justified, predestined, foreknown, chosen, counted righteous. In other words, the language that's used of salvation in the New Testament is not this language. So, if this text said it is impossible for those who have been predestined and called and justified and counted righteous if they fall away, 
the argument is that would be a very different situation than what we actually have. In other words, this, although it, in a first blush, seems to indicate conversion, falls short of that freighted theological language that guarantees someone is actually regenerate and converted who's in view here. Now, not only that, but look at verses 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. In other words, what do you learn from this illustration? The illustration is set up that this land, the different types of land, good and bad land, receives the exact same experience of blessing of God. That is, the same rain falls on both. So, in the same way that in a corporate service like this, the same songs are sung, the same prayers are heard, the same text is opened, the same sermon is listened to, or not listened to as the case may be, uh, the same experience is, is happening, and some people leave. You think, you think about it like a Billy Graham crusade, just, just, just for example. Does it ever occur to you that out of tens and tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in some cases, listening to Billy Graham, you hear the ex- it's the exact same thing that happens, and some go forward and some leave. What made the difference? It was the exact same rain falling, the exact same experience, but different crops, different harvests, different fruit, and then different responses. Blessing of God versus being burned and destroyed in the end. So these scholars will say, look, if you just pay attention to that illustration, you'll notice that because good fruit is produced from a good heart, Jesus teaches that, that what's going on here is the people who are falling away are people who have had all these experiences, but they've never genuinely been converted. They've never genuinely put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they don't produce good fruit because their heart hasn't been deeply touched and deeply changed. Now, another line that's used for this is in terms of paying attention to the pronouns, and this is where you should be really happy uh, that you love, I was going to say English, it wasn't originally written in English, but that you love English. You love pronouns. So, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, let us, right? verse 3, God permitting we, us and we, that's all the same boat. Verse 4, it is impossible for those. That's a different pronoun. There's now subtle distantiation. Verse 6, uh, they have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss. So you have us and we, then those and their. But then verse 9 even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Verse 10, he will not forget your work and the love you have shown. And so what you have is, the first three verses is us and we. Verses 9 and following is we and you. But verses 4 through 8, it's them and their, those. It's slightly different verbally. Now, also verse 9, even though we speak like this to your friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, 
the things that have to do with salvation. It has been known, I think, fairly that if verses 4 through 8 are designed to tell you that you, may be, that you can be a Christian and lose your salvation, verse 9 makes no sense. How can you be sure of better things in your case if anyone can lose their salvation? The, the, the whole point would be you can't be sure of better things. You can't be sure of things that accompany salvation because the whole point is you can lose your salvation if that's the right reading of verses 4 through 8. And so usually what we want to do is we don't want to interpret one paragraph which makes the next sentence virtually incoherent. Okay? So if he can be confident of better things in their case, then it would seem that the message of falling away in verses 4 through 6 in some ways don't apply to those who are genuinely saved that he knows, his dear friends. I think that's important. Now, the second interpretation, so that, that interpretation is these people aren't really converted. Now, I'll say this too. I'm just, I only have time to deal with this passage. There are all kinds of other biblical texts that you'd want to bring in to weigh into this. Okay. Like First John, the fact that they've gone out from us shows they never were part of us. Yeah, that, that's important as well. The second, so that, that interpretation is they were never really converted. The second interpretation is they are converted and they lose their salvation. And this one basically says, look, although the language doesn't use justification, it's not justification, counted righteous, etc., this isn't Paul. So you have to let this person write the way they write. And enlightened, tasted, shared, etc., that sure sounds like a conversion experience, unless you're reading it through with a theological agenda. The most naturally way of, the most natural way of taking these, this vocabulary is about conversion. In other words, they know Christ then they reject him. And the reason you can't be brought back is this. If you know Christ and then repudiate him, what you're really doing is saying the people who crucified him were right. He was a liar and a blasphemer. He is not the Lord. He is not the Savior. He got what he deserved. Those are the stakes for turning away from Jesus. You either accept him as Lord and Savior, or you ratify that he wasn't worthy of life. Blessings have been poured out on them, but they've only produced thorns and thistles, and so they've lost their salvation. That one is very easy to understand. The third interpretation is that these people are really converted— And they won't lose their salvation, partly because of this paragraph, which is warning you against falling away. Now, that actually makes no sense at all, which is usually one of those times where you say, when intelligent, godly people say something that makes no sense at all, maybe I need to stop and think about it. One of the finest New Testament scholars that we have today in North America uh, is, is a New Testament scholar named Thomas Schreiner. A couple of years ago, I spoke at a conference with, with Dr. Schreiner. Uh, I won't tell you which one of us was the keynote speaker. Uh, and, and, and I heard Dr. Schreiner uh, speaking. He's partly talking about um, these warning passages in Hebrews. He says he has a daughter who's an excellent runner. And so I go and I watch my daughter run, long-distance running. 
And I, and I go to various spots on, on the track or the path, you know, and, and I'll yell encouragement. And he says, what do you think I yell? He says, I don't do things, I don't yell things like, hey, what are you doing? Are you running? He's like, he's like I don't do that. He says, I, I yell things like, don't give up. Don't quit. If you stop now, you won't, reach the, you won't get the prize. If you give up now, you won't reach the goal. If you quit running, you'll never make it. And that helps encourage her to keep running. Because you don't want to miss the goal. That's why you're running. Or you're a masochist, one of the two. So you run for the goal, and part of it is don't quit or else you won't make it. In other words, See, this is a hypothetical warning. It's like, if you stop running, you won't make it, but he knows she's going to keep running. And she's going to partly keep running because he's telling her, this is what happens if you quit. In the same way, the argument is, this is a hypothetical warning where the author is saying, if you follow, if you turn back on your profession, if you don't keep walking with Jesus, you're not going to make it. If you don't keep walking with Jesus, you're not going to make it to glory. In other words, a mark of genuine salvation is that you persevere all the way to the end. But how do we persevere? Partly through the warnings of don't quit, don't stop, don't stop walking with Jesus. Don't lose the prize, keep going, keep running, don't stop. In the same way that you, know, you, you have some cliffs narrow paths, so of warning signs, don't get too close to the edge. In other words, those warning signs are part of what keeps you from getting too close to the edge. They're hypothetical warnings. Don't come too close. Stay back. If you come here, if you go too far, then there's loss and death and ruin. But for those who are intelligent, those signs are part of what keeps them safe. In other words, warnings can be hypothetical, but actually serve a genuinely positive, or actually serve a genuinely positive role precisely for that reason. So the warning is real. If you fall away, you will be lost. But it's contingent and hypothetical. It's part of how God keeps you persevering. Now, which one of those interpretations is right? Before we answer that question, let's just take a quick look at verses 9 through 12. Again, I think this is actually a massively important verse in verse 9. He is convinced of better things with them. He's convinced of things that accompany salvation with them. God is not unjust. He's not going to forget your work and your love that you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. That verse 10 is actually, a, a, in terms of church, that verse would be well worth unpacking, uh, but really it's the, be, the, the best way to unpack it is for you to meditate on that. Meditate on chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him, the love you have shown him as you have helped his people. Just, that is well worth thinking about. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. In other words, you cling to hope, not in fits and starts, but you cling to hope all the way to the very end. 
That's how it will be fully realized. You don't give up your hope. You hold on to it to the end. Do not become lazy. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Hope and faith drive it, and then you patiently wait for the inheritance that God has promised. That's how you make it all the way to the end. Now, the question then, can you lose your salvation, is not the question of this text. Can you lose your salvation is a question of systematic theology. And it's a fine question to ask and a fine question to answer. But it's not the question that the author of Hebrews is answering in this section. What the author of Hebrews is doing in this section is really implicitly asking this question. Are you trusting Christ? That's the question of this text. It's not, if you trust Christ, can you lose your salvation? It's, are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting Christ? Are you committed to Him? That's why he has this warning. The warning is is designed to get you to commit with all that you are to hold on to Jesus. That's what counts. Because in some ways, I I, I had a student talk about this just a couple of weeks ago, and and, and I'm not sure if my response was any good, um, but I said, look, in some ways, in some ways, it's just academic. That is, let's say the person is genuinely converted and loses their salvation. Where do they end up? Let's say they were never really converted and, and they repudiate the Lord. Where do they end up? You would have been in the same place. So what we really want to do is instead of worrying about the abstract theology that gets you to that same place, is just not get to that place. And how do you not get to that place? Trust in Christ. In other words, in other words this, the whole thing is designed to get everyone to say, oh my goodness, you can be lost. And you can, you can be close. You can have experiences, whatever they are. You can be lost. Let's not be lost. Trust in Jesus. Commit yourself to Him wholeheartedly today. Don't let go. Don't stop running. Make sure you know Jesus. That's the question. Do you know Christ? But then even more than that, I would suggest, because I'm not going to actually give you the right answer, even though, of course, I know it, the way I do with every passage, But to tip my hand a little bit, the question is also in the Bible never really, do I have enough faith? That is, can I hold on to Him tightly enough? There's elements of that. But the real question is always this, can God hold on to me tightly enough? Can, can, can Jesus keep his hand in my, can, can Jesus keep my hand in his? You know, the, the, the way a parent walking with a little toddler and, and that toddler starts wiggling and jerking and, and there's, there's a busy road there, you know, that, can, can that parent hold on to that toddler's hand? Well, well, can God keep us secure? 
Is it a matter of the strength of my faith, or is it a matter of the strength of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ who keeps His people? And, and so that's what I focus on. In other words, I look at my faith. That is, I ask, am I trusting Christ? But, but I don't spend all of my time navel-gazing. What I do is I ask, am I trusting in Jesus? But, the more they, but then I focus on who Jesus is. Is Christ a Savior who can save? Can I trust Him with my soul? Can I trust that the Spirit of God through the merit of Christ can get me all the way to glory? Can I trust that, that when sins are washed away by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, they're really washed away? The, can I trust that Jesus actually provided an atonement for sin? Can I trust that He actually paid the penalty for my, in my behalf? Can I trust that before God I am justified, I'm already pronounced innocent legally because I am in Christ, He paid the penalty for my sin? Well, if you can read the rest of Hebrews and not think that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, that's a very creative reading. Yes, there's atonement. There is a Savior. There is a Lord. And there is no one who puts their faith in that Lord who will be disappointed by Him or who who that Lord will be unable to keep. But those He keeps through the Spirit persevere. They don't stop running. So keep running. This is why earlier Hebrews said, who do you fix your eyes on? You don't fix your eyes on your own faith. You fix your eyes on Jesus and keep going towards Him. That's what the text calls you to do. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus today.